Welcome to GMI, the Guitar and Music Institute podcast number nine. My name is Jed Brocky, and today I'm going to be interviewing Hollywood film composer, conductor, and co-producer and arranger Hummy Mann. Hummy's film composition work has included Dracula Dead and Loving It, Robin Hood Men in Tights, Cyberworld 3D, Thomas and the Magic Railroad, Smokey and the Bandit Part 3, and he's also conducted and arranged and ghostwritten for numerous other Hollywood films. What he's got to tell us is incredibly exciting and interesting for anyone who's interested in music and specifically interested in writing for film. Hummy's interview is going to be serialised over the coming weeks. If you're listening to this on iTunes, please subscribe. We are available on many other download sites around the world. Hummy, it is really great to have you on the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Nice to see you. It's been a while. Too long. Too long, I know. With our with my guests, I usually try and get them to start at the beginning. I don't see why you should be any different. So, <laughs> you are an incredibly gifted composer, but how did it all start? How did it all really begin? I seem to have a, an interest very early on for writing, which is uh, when I when I tell people about my, about my beginning. I mean, I started playing, you know, recorder in, in high in school. You know, when I was in in, in grade school, three blind and, mice. Yeah, you name it, probably hot cross buns, three blind mice, the big hits, you know, of the day. And then what ended up happening is that uh, I went to summer camp, which was very popular for people on the east coast of the United States. They would go go away to summer camp for a month or two during the summer. And while I was at summer camp, there was a uh, a trio, a band, uh, and the guitar player's name was Bucky. Is Howard? I think it's David Buckman or Howard Buckman. But anyway, I started taking guitar lessons that one summer. My father found an old guitar and sent it up to me, and I started playing guitar. And, you know, I'd learn three chords, and I'd write two songs. Like, literally, the day I started playing, I started writing songs. And so by the end of the summer, I knew seven chords, and I'd written ten songs. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so do you come from a, a musical background? My mother was actually a, uh, a, a trained uh, pianist. She had done some, you know, uh, some performing in her younger years. Um, and we always had music around the house. We had a, you know, my mother, um, my parents bought a grand piano that was lit in the living room. And they would have like musical soirees where they would have local pianists come and do performances. I remember sitting at the top of the stairs in our house and listening to the pianists playing, you know, Rachmaninoff or whatever. They were, I, I hope the piano was lit from above. It probably was, you know. I unfortunately, I was li- we lived up a staircase. You know, there was a round staircase, so we couldn't see the piano. We could only hear it. <laughs> and the kids out of sight, out of mind, type of thing. Yeah. Um, and all of my my uh, my siblings also played. I had a brother who played drums, and a brother who played bass, and my sister played flute. Um, but I was the only one that really pursued it all the way to the end. In fact, I I kind of remember my father trying to learn how to play. I think it was clarinet, and he was. You know, because he was the only person in the family who didn't play an instrument, and he was never really got it. I mean, he—I think he frustratingly at six, at fifty, or you know, in his forties or fifties, tried to pick up an instrument and just had no luck with it, which was, I think, a frustration to him. But he appreciated the fact that the rest of us did it and and uh, you know encouraged us. But again, I was the only one that continued it past you know high school. Do Do you have any thoughts on why? Some people almost instinctively understand the language of music, and others don't. 
Uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I never really thought about that. Somehow, I mean, I guess that there must be something that came down the genes on my mother's side. You know, my my both of my kids uh, are involved in music. My older daughter was a flute player, and she's a professional dancer. And my younger daughter uh, is a singer, and um, so I, I don't know. There must be something that 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 happens that, that some 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 chromosome that gets triggered on or off that must that must carry some of this because obviously there's people who I mean I have friends who are completely tone deaf and you know when you're singing happy birthday it's a painful experience so there's got to be the opposite that happens as well I would certainly imagine we'll have to we'll have to get back to you on that one <laughs> Jed we'll have to do some research well there's there's a whole thing about you know um you learn when you're a kid you you learn music because you like it but I, I just sometimes wonder if almost it's choosing you as opposed to you're choosing it. Well, no, I, I think that that's a really interesting question. I mean, because there are, like I said, people who are completely tone deaf that can't, you know, you sing, you sing a pitch and they, they can't even get anywhere close to matching it. And, you know, they have no sense of melody, you know. Uh, I have a very dear friend who, when he, like I said, when he sings Happy Birthday, it's just the worst abomination you could possibly imagine. And I love him and dearly as a friend, but, you know, we tell him not to sing. And <laughs> you won't be getting them on a recording session anytime soon. Yeah, and you also don't want to go out for an evening of karaoke with him because it's just going to be like, oh. <laughs> so after that initial picking up the guitar and getting lessons and writing all these tunes and everything, what happened next? I remember getting back to um, camp. It was in the country, obviously. And there, during that next year, taking guitar lessons at the local Y, you know, in a group group lesson. And learning a whole bunch of Beatles songs and things of that sort. Did, did and, you say the uh, local Y? Yeah, the uh, oh, like the YMCA, YMHA. Ah, right, okay. You know, um, did you have to dress up as an Indian or something? Uh, no, not not for that stuff. That that comes much later in my life, actually. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. When I was doing Indian princesses with my daughter, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> I took lessons. You know, I'd go there on like weekend mornings and take a class and guitar and learn how to play more chords and that's where i first discovered barred chords ooh, and made my fingers hurt and yeah you know finally got myself a decent guitar and i just kept at it i mean i just you know i, I was very very turned on to the fact that i could play songs i have this kind of really horrible recollection of telling people that you know i was i i, I guess my little my ego was a little bit out of shape and i remember telling kids who were younger than me that I, when i play guitar and they and I'd say things like, "Yeah, if you like the Beatles, you'll like me." <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so nothing really changed then. <laughs> A little humility gained in the late, later years of my life, but yes. What really interested you was the compositional side of things. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I I, I still to this day play guitar, but I won't. I won't. I, rarely do it professionally because there's you know gifted talented people such as yourself who could you know blow me away on the instrument but you know i think that my strength has always been in composition i mean it's funny because next week i'm doing a performance that i haven't been on stage for years and years and years with my songwriting partner sue ennis uh who used to co-write a lot of the songs for the band heart that you're probably familiar with the, yeah. the, the female band anyway she and i have become writing partners have written a lot of songs together and we're doing a performance kind of lecture kind of chat about the collaborative process 
And it's like for the first time in my life, I have to practice again so I don't mess up on stage because I, you know, I don't care if I can play through the song. I just care that I use the piano or the guitar as a tool. Do you carry on and, and tell us about your yeah. journey? So I just kept on playing guitar all the way through high school. I would do a lot of performing. Um, I remember doing concerts at my local high school where I would play, you know, James Taylor songs, the songs that I wrote. And um, I had a duo for a little while with a, with a, a piano player named Jimmy Pantel, who uh, uh, we would, we would, we, I remember we performed like Amer the entire version of American Pie together and we would do, you know, silly things. Also, we played the, the end piano part from Layla on the piano and we would do it as forehand piano and we would switch positions by crawling over each other. And this is something like so Dudley Moore. Yeah, I know. Victor Borger. Come on, Dudley yeah. Moore. <laughs> um, I mean, I did, I did like some strange things. Like I, uh, I was in a couple of bands also along the way, and one one actually no, it was a duo, it was a guitar duo with a with a guy that I met years later. I I actually worked at summer camps in Ontario, and I met a guy named Laurie Mann, who's you know we weren't really related, but we were both guitarists, and uh, I think it was with Laurie that we we did like the entire thick as a brick, you know, the Jethro Tull piece. You are actually Canadian uh, from birth, but you're now a naturalized American. Is that correct? Yeah. I'm a dual citizen at this point, yeah. Yes. So, yeah, no, I became an American citizen uh, ooh, 11 or 12 years ago. Okay. After living for a long, long, long time. At what point did you decide, Tommy, that you kind of really wanted to do this as a career? Well, I think I always had aspirations of doing it as a career all the way through high school. But, of course, my parents weren't all that comfortable with me, you know, becoming a musician, leaving high school. I, and I had a high aptitude for math and physics. And so... I worked fairly hard at my, my my senior year of high school, the first semester or the first half of the year. Um, I got what was called early unconditional acceptance to McGill University, which means I could sleep through the rest of my career in high school. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, you've done the work. We know you're we know you're a good student. Take the next six months off, and then we'll see you at McGill. And I got accepted into what I was told and what I believed then was the hardest department, which was the engineering department. And uh, the reason I tell that story is because I actually walked into some of my final matriculations in grade 11 without ever having studied at all. Uh, I mean, there was one exam that I walked in. There was a three-hour exam that was multiple choice, and I hadn't studied for it at all. And I literally just went through and went A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. And I walked out of the exam after five minutes. And there, this is a three-hour exam that everybody was sweating over because I knew I didn't need the exam. I also hated the teacher. Um, and what, what grade did you get? I think I think that literally my grade was like 5%. <laughs> I thought you always got 20%. If you, you know, a couple of things out of that. Um, one is, do you think there's a correlation between mathematics, people who are good at mathematics or at least feel drawn to it, and musicians? Absolutely. In fact, I think a lot of the teachers that I had at Berklee College of Music, because, you know, I was still relatively early going into a contemporary music degree program, a lot of those guys had had engineering or mathematics backgrounds. In fact, there was one of the, um, when before Berkeley became Berkeley College of Music, there was a, it was called Schillinger House. And there was a guy named uh, Joseph Schillinger who wrote a whole system of musical theory based on mathematics. It was very interesting. You look in the book and it looked like calculus. It was unbelievable. It, it sounds very emotional. The, but, but wait a second. The thing is, is that we could poke fun at it, but he had one 
unfortunately only one, but one really famous student, which was George Gershwin, who was not exactly a slouch. Wow. Okay, yeah. I stand corrected. Now, on this whole thing, uh, I, I was doing a little bit background research about you, and much to my much to my much to my amazement, uh, when I think back in some of our conversations, uh, I actually found out you are a member of Mensa. That's true. I am. I'm embarrassed. No, I'm not embarrassed to say. The, tell tell us about that, Hummy, and tell us about why you your um, self esteem is so low that you needed to go and <laughs> actually take that exam. Actually, you know, the thing that's interesting is that so. So uh, the story about joining Menza is actually funny, I think. I went to – I'm in Los Angeles, and I'm starting to have a career working on some television work. And one of the magazines that I used to get was an, an American magazine called Omni. I don't know if they had it over in the UK, but it was a science magazine. And it would talk about, you know, black holes and whatever, you know. It's a bit like New Scientist then. I, I guess, you know, it's just – it's it, it, it's – it's not as it's not as kind of technical as a, as a what's the American Scientific, which is like the yeah. technical science magazine, but it's more of a consumer level. Here's interesting things about science magazine. So you were reading and, articles and knew all the answers before you'd read come to the end. <laughs> I don't know. No, that, what happened is that I, I bought the magazine. I read the magazine, and in the corner on one of the back pages, there was like you know, send us twenty bucks and take the Mensa home test. And I'd always been curious about Mensa. You know, I mean, I knew what it was. And so I, um, so I sent away for this test and it's supposed to be a time test. You know, you're supposed to have someone times you mm-hmm. and, and, uh, we lost track of time being quite honest with you. That's basically what happened. And so I ended up spending more time and I was really frustrated and I thought for sure I'd just bl- completely blown the test. Not only did I go over time, but I felt like the dumbest character on the, on the planet. Anyway, I mailed the thing in cause I'd already paid for it. And, uh, and then, like a month and a half later, I got a letter congratulating me and asking me to sit for the proctored test, where you have to actually go somewhere and they have somebody officially watch you over you. And I went, there must be a mistake here. <laughs> I'm so sure th- th- this is Mensa spelt with an S, not a Z. Yeah, M E N S. So I ended up going to uh, going to this bank that had a had a meeting room. And they gave us two IQ tests, one in the morning, then you had a lunch break, and then a different one in the afternoon. And again, I left feeling like a dummy. And again, lo and behold, I have a very high IQ. So, so, so come on then, what, what, how, how high is it? Come on, what, what's the number? I, I actually don't know the number. What, they didn't tell you? No, they don't tell you. The, the, only, the only requirement for being in Mensa is that you are in the top two percentile of anybody who's ever taken an IQ test. Really? Your age. Yeah. So in other words, for, for my age group, at the time that I took it, and I think I was like early, maybe late 20s, early 30s at the time, of everybody in that age group, I was in the top 2%. That's quite amazing. So, so, so from that, can we confer that you're quite emotionally retarded? <laughs> I hope not, because I that would be pretty horrible for writing music. But, uh, <laughs> well, that's true. That is quite quite astonishing. I mean, there's a lot of conflicting. Uh, we're getting way off topic here, but why not? Obviously, there was something about it that that you related to. What what is it really a measure of? Your ability to Nothing. with numbers and shapes? No, I have I have no idea what it's a measure of. Being quite honest with you, I've never been an active men's member. In fact, the first meeting, the first after I joined, I went to a meeting, and it really was like 
the biggest group of nerds I'd ever met in my life. So is it all about everybody trying to outsmart everybody? I don't think that it's that. I think that they, they you know, they just, they're, they're just, just the philosophy of Menza is that people who are very, very bright hanging out and discussing with people who are very, very bright might come up with some very, very bright ideas. And, you know, it's promoting, it's promoting people who, who have that distinction uh, to, to kind of uh, socialize with each other. I've been to a couple of events up in Seattle. They seem a little less nerdy. And I think it's only because people up here, you know, there's a lot of people involved in software development and stuff. So I'm sure there's a bazillion men's of people up here. Do you think intelligence has anything to do with music making and improvisation and composition? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I know a lot of people, I mean, you know, I, I, I never ask anybody what if they're members of Menza. So. <laughs> no, it's not the sort of thing you, on the I, session. Fact, where, right. where did you get this information? I want That's something I want to know. How did you f- find this out? Well, I found it on your website, actually. It's on my website? Oh, you know it because it's on my affiliations. It just says it in the that's bottom right, of my yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, let's, let's move on because I think everyone will be very interested in that, but they're not particularly interested in men so they want to know about you yeah basically i was i all the way through through high school and college i was performing and writing and every now and then an embarrassing photograph of one of my concerts shows up uh one showed up on facebook a couple of months ago you know or because i one of one of the interesting unusual things was that i had a big beard all the way through high school i mean I, i i got facial hair very young in life and so I was like playing in places in clubs that I wasn't actually allowed into because I was underage, but I looked much older. So take us then. Um, you went to Berkeley, didn't you? Yeah, actually, the, the story is that that after high school, I went to, to McGill University for one year in electrical engineering. And my father noticed that I wasn't playing guitar anymore. You know, something that I would do for hours and hours and end of the day. I, I very distinctly had this recollection of us going out for lunch together and him saying to me, well, you know, I know you're not playing guitar very much, you know, and I know you have a passion for this and, and I feel bad about it. And I said, well, you know, Dad, it's kind of hard to come home and do four hours of physics homework and four hours of calculus and then want to pick up a guitar. I'm exhausted at that point. And he basically said to me that if I applied to music school and I got in, he would send me. And um, I applied to Berkeley College of Music, which with all deference to how great Berkeley is today, I think that at the time that I applied, they were still, you know, kind of beginning school. I got in because I could, I, I, I have this, again, a, a strange recollection that the application form was also a basic theory test. And it would say, what is this? And it would be a treble clef. And if you could identify a treble clef, you could get into Berkeley. Wow. Getting, getting in the bar was quite low, but getting out the bar was quite high. I mean, I remember my entering my entering class was 1,500 students, and my graduating class was 110. A huge <laughs> attrition rate. Right. But see, at the time, Berkeley didn't really – I think that, that the philosophy of Berkeley changed. At the time, I don't think they really cared. I think that if they could get 1,500 students, it could support all the building and, and infrastructure that they were doing. I mean, you know, they had more studios, and I mean, Berkeley now is like – you know, it's got all, it's got 24 recording studios on campus. So, you know, it's, it's, they had to, they needed money to do that. And if they only accepted, you know, the guitarists that could read music, they'd have a real problem. Now I could read, but I was a horrible sight reader. And when I got to Berkeley, I completely messed up my sight reading test. They put me in a class 
and all of your musician listeners will appreciate this, but they didn't even give you sheet music. They would just put the music up on a, you know, they'd project it because it was all whole notes. It'd be four bars of eight bars of whole notes. And they played it like, you know, 60 beats per minute. So you go one, two, three, four. And you're tuning your pencil at this point. <laughs> I was ready to kill. I, I, I mean, I wasn't good at auditions. And I after after like two meetings of this class, I said, look, please, you got to let me re-audition because this is ridiculous. You know, and then I got immediately put into a, I think it was a level. It, I think there was like 10 or 12 levels of sight reading. And I was put into like a level six sight reading class because I was, I was, I could read, but I was a great sight reader. So not exactly the plasticine class. <laughs> yeah, that was, I'll never forget that class. It was so horrible. And, and the thing that was even more amazing to me is that I was bored to death, but there were guys in that class who were hitting wrong notes. <laughs> <laughs> How could you hit a wrong note? 60 beats per minute, you could go and take a coffee between the downbeat of each bar. You know? <laughs> so just, just for people listening in who may not know what Ami's talking about, it's 60 beats per minute, just think of seconds. That's how fast the speed or tempo Hummy's talking about there. We'd be playing one note every four, five, four seconds. You know, it's just like, it's incredibly slow. I just really messed up my my entrance uh, audition. So anyway, so I was at Berkeley and I was a guitar major for the first two years. And the reason I was only a guitar major for the first two years is because composition majors. So, so basically, guitar was my principal instrument. Composition was my major. I, I used the wrong terms there. Your principal instrument, you have to take a certain amount of lessons, private lessons, and what they call juries in the United States. I don't know what they call them anywhere else in the world. So at the end of every quarter, you have to demonstrate a skill set. You know, you have to play some, play some prepared pieces, do a sight reading test, and scales and chords and things of that sort. But as a composition major, I only had to do four juries so i only did them for the first two years that i was there and then i switched instruments and strangely enough i was very much enamored by the music of a group called the paul winter consort which had um the instrumentation on a particular album which i fell madly in love with called the road album was flute oboe cello acoustic bass guitar and percussion and they did kind of a combination of fusion of jazz and classical and it really the, one of the first recordings was a um, piece called um, Icarus. I think Ralph Towner actually played in the band. Yeah, he wrote it. Yeah, Ralph Towner, what a player. So he was in the band and because they performed his piece, Icarus, which is something that he wrote. Did everyone have mustaches and flares? <laughs> Probably did, actually. The album cover looks very psychedelic. It's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> but I, I wore out this album, and then what ended up happening is that I formed a group at Berkeley, an ensemble, of that same thing, and we would transcribe their pieces and, and write pieces for them, but I could never find an oboe player that could improvise, and I figured, how hard can it be to play oboe? So I, oboe became my my instrument from then on at Berkeley, and I was pretty mediocre oboe player, but they didn't have very many oboe players to compete against, so it was like, there was one other oboe player, so in the concert band, I was oboe player number two, whereas in any other school, I wouldn't even have been in the band because I would be so horrible. <laughs> Second call oboe player, man. Believe me. Being the second call was a, was was wonderful because I got to play music that I would never have ever played before. I had a good oboe player next to me, and I was a bad oboe player. You know, I eventually became a, a an okay oboe player because I played. I had already played flute and clarinet and some other instruments along the way, so it wasn't like 
I was starting from scratch as a woodwind player. In fact, when I was at Berkeley, and they don't do this anymore, the composition majors used to take the instrumentation classes that they made the education majors take. So I took a trumpet class and a trombone class and a cello class. That's and I a tested, great idea. Yeah, I tested out of I tested out of uh, flute and clarinet because I'd already played those. I picked those up through high school and grade school. So, so the point of that humming would be so that uh, as, a, as a composer, you would know the, the technicalities and specific problems or limitations or what an instrument could do. Yeah, I mean, you're supposed to learn that in, in orchestration class anyway. And I think that it that I, I would say that that the problem is, is that until you really master an instrument, you're writing to your the player's limitations, you know. And so it can really scare you off. I was particularly frightened by trombone for many years because I just couldn't figure out how trombone just didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. I mean, I took trombone class and I understood the mechanics, but you know, when I would hear guys go, I just go, oh my god, how the hell are they doing that stuff? You know, you know, I could see how a trumpet player could do that. I get how you get to the notes on the trumpet, but trombone players, unless you're playing scales, it's like, how the heck are they doing this? Uh, it took years till I started writing decent trombone parts, um, or at least in my opinion, decent trombone parts. But what I think I did gain from it is you gain a sensibility that you can't gain from a book. In a book, you could learn, you know, where the breaks are on the, you know, the clarinet and the shallow register and, you know, things of that sort. But you don't really get a sense of how melody lays on the instrument. For the, for the listeners, can you just talk about what you mean by a shallow register on the clarinet? There's a particular register of the clarinet, the low register of the clarinet that has a very particularly woody and soft, uh, fuzzy sound, for lack of a better term. And they've actually given it a name called the Chalumeau register. And then when you get up above a certain level, the tone quality of the instrument changes. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about instruments that uh, we kind of lose sight of because we just get used to hearing them is that instruments sound very different in different ranges. The very low end of a trumpet doesn't sound anywhere you know, near as regal and as exciting as the high end of the trumpet does. Uh, you know, The low end of a flute doesn't have very much projection. The high end of the flute, very high end, is very it's like a missile you know it'll, and and it's really important to learn where to write on different registers of the instrument in order to get particular balances when you're writing for an orchestra so that's that's part of what you know you can learn so but it's, who is shalomo was that a person was that someone who played down there <laughs> you know i i've never even asked that question but i'm, I'm kind of imagining that he was it sounds like a person it sounds like some french guy so it sounds like Hello. a French, a French spy. Come play in my register. <laughs> <laughs> in uh, one of the previous uh, podcast interviews, I was um, talking to Callum Malcolm. You remember Callum? And he was sure. talking about when he was uh, he, he was recording uh, Stephen Grappelli. Uh, uh-huh. It was very funny, and his French impersonation was fantastic but apparently all Stefan ever wanted was more reverb monsieur more reverb <laughs> that was it so I remember I remember producing a session with Toots Thielman oh that would have been fantastic yeah I mean I, I the thing that was amazing about Toots Thielman again going off a little tangent is that we were recording a jazz album and earlier in the day we, br- we had brought in this trumpet player who I will leave a nameless because this, this trumpet player, you know, walked in with like this blonde bombshell roadie carrying a case in each hand and <laughs> would run and get him water. And, you know, it was kind of like this wacky, like, 
oh my god, what a prima donna this guy is. And then Toots Thielman walks in, and he's he's wearing like a dress, you know, a dress jacket, you know, with a casual shirt. Sits down, pulls a harmonica out of his in, in his pocket, and just blows you away. He's just like you know one of the greatest musicians on the planet. And you just kind of go, you know, you, it was just such a contrast how how humble and and mild he was, and just friendly, and just you know. You know why you know, that was? He didn't have all that packing up to do. I mean, imagine if he had been a drummer. You're absolutely wrong about the harmonica thing that you just said, and I'll tell you why. When we used to do recording sessions in Los Angeles, I worked on a TV show called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and we had a harmonica player on that TV show whose name was Tommy Morgan. Tommy Morgan would come in with like a roller bag of stuff because not only did he bring like a chromatic harmonica, he had blues harmonicas in every single key. He had bass harmonicas, double harmonicas. He had more harmonicas than you could even possibly imagine. And when you play something... You know, you'd write it in one key and you'd want that, you know, bluesy sound. Well, he'd, he'd hold four different harmonicas in his hand and switch every time you went to a different key change. It sounds like a, a, a mix between uh, Tommy Tedesco with all his gear and mm-hmm. uh, Roland Kirk. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, Roland Kirk, he would play three saxophones yeah. at the same time. At the same time, right, yeah. <laughs> I've seen him do two. I've never seen him do three, but yeah. No, but... Tommy was Tommy was legendary, and everybody, whenever you have to do a recording session with harmonica in Los Angeles, you would call Tommy and ask him when he's available, because you you book your sessions around Tommy. Wow. I mean, we it was unbelievable. He, but an amazing, amazing, amazing musician. It's just something wonderful about the harmonica. Yeah, I've tried to play it. It's it's a nightmare. You are listening to GMI Guitar and Music Institute. My name is Jed Brocky, and I'm in conversation with Hollywood composer. Hummy man. So, Hummy, you were in Berkeley. You were trying to read in uh, 60 beats per minute. When I, I remember when I got to Berkeley, I, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I just was finally getting to learn the stuff that I wanted to learn and doing the stuff I wanted to do. Massive thing by your dad, by the way. That was a massive call by him. What a guy. Yeah, I have to... Kudos to my dad for that. You know, I, it was funny. I remember, I remember being in, in college in, at Berkeley my parents would call, you know, I'd talk to them once a week on Friday night. We made this, you know, this was kind of a pact. I'd call them and I, I may be making this up, but I don't think I am. My, my, I just remember my mother always asking me, so what are you going to do when you graduate? So what are you going to do when you graduate? It's like, well, let me get through it first, Ma, and then we'll worry about it. You know, it's like, um, anyway, I got to do some amazing classes, study with some amazing people. I think that probably the biggest influence on me when I was at Berkeley was, oh, actually, before I go there, I took one film scoring class at Berkeley and hated it. It was the it was the least favorite class I took. And probably the reason why is because, you know, I had left McGill University because I didn't want to be doing calculations and all that stuff. And basically, so what ended up happening is that when this film scoring class was all mathematics, it was like all figuring out timings and figuring out tempos. And at that point, you know, we didn't have Apple home computers or all, you know, None of that stuff existed. I mean, you know, when I was the year before McGill University, I took a class on how to use a slide rule. And I remember seeing one of my professors had this thing strapped on his belt. It was in a leather case. It was a calculator that could add, subtract, multiply, and divide. And it cost him $800. (laughs) So so I just remember, you know, I mean, when when I was at McGill, still doing punch cards on the computers, you know? I mean, I, I remember walking... Was, with was a, that the coal fire one, yeah? <laughs> yeah, 
exactly that I would ride my dinosaur to. <laughs> but no, it's unbelievable. I mean, I'd be walking around with a pile of punch cards, and if you dropped them, you you want to shoot yourself because you have to put all the commands back into order, and then you'd have to go to the computer computer center. They'd run the thing. They give you this huge printout, and you find out where you had a mistake in one line of code. You'd have to remake the punch card, go run through it again. It's like unbelievable how far we've come since then. How did computers ever take off? I mean, you look at that ba- Babbage's computer, you know, down in England. There's a billion cogs. <laughs> how did it would take a geek to keep going to get to the point now where most of the time we can switch it on and it works. <laughs> You were talking about how much you hated the, the film uh, score. Oh, yeah, I hated the film score class because we spent all of our time doing these calculations instead of learning how to write dramatic music. And I was kind of, it was very frustrating to me. So I, I didn't really know that I was going to end up being a film composer. In fact, one of the things that attracted me to Berkeley College of Music was that I was a very big fan of a Canadian singer-songwriter named Bruce Coburn, who played a lot of finger-picking, kind of Leo Kotke-ish type of guitar stuff. And I found out that he went to Berkeley, and that's one of the main reasons I wanted to go to Berkeley. So I didn't know that I wasn't going to be a performer at that point in my life. I mean, I had been a performer doing all the way through high school. One of the most influential teachers that I had was a guy named Herb Pomeroy. He taught these very selective classes where uh, the first one was called um, line writing, the second one was called uh, Writing in the Style of Duke Ellington. And the third one was called Jazz Composition. And I'll, I'll never forget this. The line writing class had two sections with, I think, 14 students in each section or 12 students in each section. You had to have really high grades in your arranging classes in order to get in. And I got into it. And Herb was kind of an interesting cat in that he wanted, he wanted people to know they were competing against each other. Because basically at the end of these 14 these two 14-section classes, 14-person classes, so 28 students, he whittled it down to 12. And he, he made it very clear. I mean, at the end of, like, he, when you took an exam, he put everybody's grades up on the board and say, okay, if you can guess which is your grade, then you'll get into the next class. But otherwise, only the top 12 people are getting in. This sounds a little like uh, whiplash. <laughs> oh, wait, no, it was like whiplash. It was like writer's whiplash, but he was a brilliant teacher, and the stuff he taught was phenomenal. So I, I made it from that class into the scoring in the style of Duke Ellington and then made it from scoring the style of Duke Ellington to one of four in the jazz composition class. And the thing that was so amazing about the jazz composition class is we had our own big band and we'd have to write a big, a new original big band chart every week. That is astonishing. I mean, I can just imagine what people would be saying, students would be saying now. They'd be screaming at that. Oh, it was it was incredible. So we did a ton of writing, and and Herb got a got had a great band. It was the Herb Pomeroy Project Band, and Herb himself was an amazing musician. He 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 used to tell stories about how one time uh, Duke Ellington actually came to visit Berkeley, and Duke heard that he, there was a class about writing in the style of Duke Ellington, and Duke came into the class and said, uh, "So I want to know what it is I do." <laughs> That must have been very scary for the guy. Well, you know, the thing that's interesting is that, and I'm, I'm going to jump around here for a second, is that one of the things that's interesting is that music theory has always been based upon what the creators have done. You know, nobody nobody codified the stuff that they were doing. They all just wrote. And somebody else went and said, oh, I see, I see patterns in what Duke does. I see patterns in what Bach does. I see patterns in, you know, Bach didn't write the... The theory books, you know, somebody else wrote the theory books. And it's interesting because a year and a half ago, and I know we're going to get there eventually, but a year and a half ago, I completed my doctorate and I got a doctorate in musical arts 
where the entire thesis was the codification of techniques that film composers use in dramatic, writing dramatic music, which, again, nobody has really done. Or, you know, in my opinion, I think I'm one of the first anyway. Is like looking at, like, how do people create tension or how do create, people create excitement or how do you, you know, what are, what are the techniques that composers are using to create various dramatic effects? And the fact that Duke Ellington came into to, to Herb's class and said that makes all the sense in the world to me because Duke Ellington wasn't sitting around trying to figure out what he was doing. He was just doing it. And, he, you know, there are there are gifted people, as we started this conversation with, who are just going to be people who are going to be innovators and are going to hear things differently. And then the rest of us are going to look at those guys and go, what is he doing that's making that incredible sound? In our next podcast, part two of this interview, we'll be discovering what Hummy did after he left Berkeley, the work that he got down in Florida, and how he ultimately broke into the LA music scene. If you enjoy the GMI podcasts, please go to the Guitar Music Institute website, that's www.guitarmusicinstitute.com, where you'll find further materials about this interview, including videos, images, and more. Please support us by going to our Patreon page, which is on a link right under this interview, where if you feel you have got something from this, you can donate and help us meet the costs of these productions. We look forward to having your company on the next one.